Welcome back to the CIO Show. I'm David Binning, Associate Editor of CIO. I say every organisation is a technology company these days. This is especially the case for businesses in the financial services sector. In this, our third industry vertical special, we talk to three finance tech experts about how the industry is progressing on its digital transformation journey. And despite what the banks and others say, some of their biggest challenges are yet to be resolved. Massive and expensive legacy systems are still entrenched at the core. There is such as mortgage lending still bogged in manual paper-based processing, creating unnecessary costs and pain for customers. Innumerable fintechs have moved to seize opportunities to improve the customer experience with some spectacular successes and failures along the way. But regardless, this sharp pivot to full customer centricity in finance is putting further pressure on incumbents to lift their game, in turn, make, in turn making the job of CIOs even more challenging. Our first guest is Chris Bell, who's Regional VP Executive Programs for ANZ with Gartner. Chris has held senior technology roles with CBA, Macquarie, AMP, and other organisations in the financial services space. Chris, welcome to the CIO Show. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, so one of the one of the trends that that um, that we discussed recently is that um, that some of the some of the big banks, or actually many of the big banks, are hiring dedicated data managers. So hiring hiring people into roles that aren't necessarily CIOs and, and perhaps in, in, in parallel with with their existing tech teams. What does this mean for you know for CIOs working in, in the banking and financial services sector at the moment? Yeah, it's a really good question and uh, it's certainly a trend that we've observed both, both locally and globally, which is uh, we're seeing obviously the rise of chief digital officers, chief data officers and also very senior executives who are put in, in charge of um, transformation. And, and often what's happening is these, these individuals are being brought in at the executive level of the organisation or at a minimum as a peer to the CIO. Now, the challenge, of course, for CIOs is that their role becomes much more focused on the run-the-bank aspects, not the strategic agenda that the organisation's pushing. And, yeah. and also the challenge there is that they'll, they'll be, you know, still held accountable for... Um, you know, the service management aspects and the performance of the systems and making sure that we're reducing the tech complexity, but not necessarily on the value-creating activities that the organisation's focused on. And that must be enormously frustrating for, for CIOs that find themselves in that position because presumably, you know, the top CIOs, the top CIOs that are working in, in, in financial services organisations are or should be more than capable of um, yeah. of leading these digital transformations, yet you know is is what's happening that there's a perception developing at the executive level that oh well you know we've got this big job to do let's hire let's hire somebody from big tech and they'll take care of it. Yeah, there's definitely a little bit of that, and and I think um, what what's interesting is that actually CIOs are in a unique position to be able to drive this change and transformation. You know, there's not many organizations at the executive level that have such a broad view of what's, what's happening and really understand the end-to-end. Um, often in banks, they're quite solo, siloed along particular business lines. But um, typically, the, the CIO, the technology, has a great view around what's happening in the organization. But as you said, they've got to earn the right and show the executive that they are the person that can lead that change and transformation and often particularly if their focus and how they presented and delivered up to the executive and the board is is a very inward 
um, view and face of technology mm. are simply going to be passed over for those opportunities. Yeah, sure. Well, and as, as someone who's worked extensively within the banking sector, and now you you work with 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 banking companies as clients in your capacity and your role at Gartner, how would you rate you know the 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 degree to which the banking sector and the financial services sector in Australia has you know um, achieved digital transformation? Yeah, good good question. I, I would say um, <clears throat> it, it, it's a mixed bag. I, I would certainly say that. If we look globally, Australia's um, not in a bad position. Um, you know, the, the Australian banks did pretty well out of the GFC and managed to avoid that. So in terms of the amount of funding they've had for technology initiatives and, and digital transformation, you know, they, they, they've probably accelerated compared with particularly if we look at North American parts of Europe. But, but obviously within that, there's quite a, a degree of variability. Um, even across the big four banks, if you, you know, most of them would, most of us would have a good view around their digital offerings. Um, it's quite mixed. I, I would say that um, the, the, the focus has has quite rightly been on um, delivering exceptional customer and digital experiences. I think where the focus is turning now is much more on the on the data. And uh, I think banks have done a decent job of creating. You know, reasonable apps and and um, good interaction points with their clients, but you know, all, all this at the end of the day should be in service of of the data and understanding and analysing what their customers are doing, so they can get greater share of wallet. And and um, you know, I think that that's the that's the challenge and the thing that I'm most worried about from the tech players is is coming in and disintermediating them um, and not owning that whole whole of customer experience. So. Mm-hmm. I would say that the, the efforts are, you know, a reasonable, you know, but within that there's a degree of variability, but much more now we're seeing our members and, and CIOs across the ANZ region really trying to get their hands around data and what to do with that. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously they're, they're perceiving that threat from big tech and, and perhaps that's reflected in their seemingly increasing appetite to hire executives from big tech, yeah. but also they're seeing that threat from from the fintechs because, that I mean, that is the primary um, the business model of of these sort of challenger fintechs, yeah. right? Isn't it? It's like, well, we don't have we don't have this legacy. No. We're not encumbered by yeah. these massive legacy systems and 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 culture, no. and we're all about the data. And obviously, the big banks are buying up fintechs too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we've we've seen that recently with um, the NAV acquisition. You know, and, and I think that the, the, the challenge um, for banks around this, and, and it's it, it's pretty broadly applicable across other industries as well. But I think. Um, often, if you look at the size and complexity of the technology landscape, particularly in the large banks, you know they would have not north of two thousand plus applications, depending on how you measure it. And so, the the ability to get um, sounds like a, a nightmare, single, right there. Well, I mean, the ability <laughs> to get a, a single consistent view of data um, is a huge challenge. And most of them have made forays into developing more uh, modern data. Um, architectures and platforms using things like data lakes, but it's it's very early days. Yeah, sure. Now, I, I understand that the, the Australian financial services sector, in particular the banking sector, is amongst the most regulated in the world. Is that is that a fair is that a fair assessment? I, I'd, I'd say it, it, it is definitely, and and certainly um, we we've seen an acceleration of that, particularly. Post the, um, the the government's royal commission, um, yep. and and that's probably a, a, a third very important theme which 
um, it's, it's certainly um, important to financial services. And, and I would say compared with the other industries that we would cover, um, it's not quite unique, but it's, it's definitely of a, of a higher importance and it's, it's on the, um, on the key priorities. And, and the, the challenge for CIOs and, and really for the organization in general is that year on year, they're seeing an increase in the allocation of, of budget and capital to deal with regulatory issues. And what that means is that um, CIOs and technology leaders are having to make trade-offs in their portfolio around, you know, am I focusing on the legacy challenge? Am I focusing on um, the digital transformation piece? Or am I dealing with these regulatory programs, which, by the way, have got very defined dates that we can't slip on and I, I have to deliver to? Yeah. And the, 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 I think the challenge and probably the question that, that CIOs in, in banking and financial services need to think about is um, there's a danger of them getting caught into a quite a reactive or short-term view around the solutions that they're developing to satisfy the regulator. Often these are very tied to um, delivering data and analytics. Mm. And, and really the, the, the challenge is, is how do they leverage that um, regulatory funding and, and those large programs to deliver more foundational capability that's going to support the organization, particularly in support of having, you know, high quality traceable data that can be leveraged, not just by um, the risk function to deal with, with uh, APRA and ATIC, but by the broader business to better understand um, customers and clients. Yeah, sure. And we spoke recently about um, about the big four banks, and you know, there's been a lot of a lot of a lot written about and discussed about which which of the four are, are more advanced in their digital transformation. It's certainly fair to say that that CBAs was one of the more ambitious. I mean, they undertook a complete um, rip and replace of of their core banking systems, right? And I and I, I remember you describing that as making a comparison with open heart surgery. <laughs> Correct, uh, and, and um, it's, it's interesting. I mean, ComBank was certainly first to move on that. I think it's probably 10 plus years ago that they um, kicked off that program and uh, with a really bold ambition. Um, and there's lots of good reasons why organizations, particularly well, for banks, um, replace their core banking system. Often those are very lo- old legacy applications. There's a lot of risk sitting in those systems. They're hard to change. They don't support modern products. Um, you know, additionally, that you know, we're seeing you know the people that support those systems start to retire, and so there's there's key person risk in terms of how you actually support those systems. And and I think um, I, I've seen certainly in the clients that I'm dealing with across this region a bit of a shift away from that. And and you know, as I said, it, it really is open heart surgery. And and I think. You've got to have, if you want to do one of these programs, really, really strong support from the CEO down that this is something you're, you're in with, you know, you're in together as a business and you're there for the long haul because these programs would, would typically take two, three, four years to complete. Mm. Um, what we're seeing now is, is perhaps um, CIOs and technology leaders take a slightly different approach, which is how do they um, renovate that core system so rather than replacing it, thin it out and redevelop the capability and functionality either through a suite of, of APIs that they can serve up to their digital layer or in other modern platforms and technologies. And, and the obvious benefit there, of course, is that you're reducing the risk and, and dealing with the problem of the core without having to do a wholesale replacement. 
Um, but you know, there's, there's still plenty that are, are, are going down the path of, of putting in a, a new modern platform. And, and, you know, each one of those, those, um, organizations has to weigh up the different pros and cons aligned with obviously the, the overall business and customer strategy that they're driving. Yeah, I'm sure. And what are your thoughts about AMP's announcement and a week or so ago about its intention to move entirely to AWS Cloud by next year? Look, I mean, at a general level, uh, uh, just to talk about cloud for a second, um, you know, the, the, the banks in, in Australia and New Zealand um, have been on the journey with cloud for a long time. Again, probably 10 plus years and obviously Michael Hart, when he was CIO at, at CBA, was was probably globally um, one of the first banking CIOs to really be out there and quite vocal about um, the, the move and shift to cloud. Um, and so, you know, we, we've seen we've seen that um, journey start with, with most financial services organisations. AMP were actually early; they were one of the first, if not the first, FI to put. Um, Workloads in public cloud yeah. with AWS. Yeah. Um, and and interestingly, the regulator is is taking a, um, a a much changed view from where they were, say, three four years ago, around that openness to support um, banks putting workloads into cloud. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think. I well, think I mean, that's it was it was, it was totally anathema only fifteen years ago. Well, that, that, that's right, yeah. and and so I think they they they've come to the conclusion that actually, like a lot of the banks did. Um, you know, the, the ability to manage manage risk and performance with a, a global giant like AWS is, is, is probably um, going, to, going to get a better outcome than individual siloed operations teams within a bank. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that it's, it's a bold aspiration that A&P has. I think that, you know, with, with all of these things, there's always a long tail of applications or systems that um, are hard to move for various reasons. Um, but that that is a that is certainly a first, I think, domestically that we've seen, and um, I, you know, I would say good luck to them. And what to what extent do you think that? I mean, we, we you know we know a lot about the potential threat um, that fintechs, neobanks, however we want to call them, pose to traditional financial institutions, traditional banks, etc. Um, you know, the fact that they that they're being bought is is one indication. But to what extent do you think that those fintechs are kind of Maybe instilling fear is too strong a term, but um, you know, creating greater impetus for digital transformation within these established um, organisations, you know, that, yeah. that are that are sort of you know being being um, in, in, hindered by these massive legacy systems. Look, I, I think um, you know the the discussion around fintech and banking has been going on for for a long time, and and I think going back to the earlier point. Um, clearly, the banks um, are very focused on maintaining a close relationship with their customers to ensure that they're collecting the data and insights to maintain and deepen their share of wallet. And obviously, the, the challenge from fintechs and other global technology companies is that if they get in there and they own the relationship with the client through superior products or customer experience, the banks become relegated to you know manufacturers of banking products, and then it's a it's a race to the bottom. Um, from a pricing and margin perspective, so it, it, there's no doubt that it's it's top of mind um, across all you know all the major financial institutions. It's interesting that I think what we've seen locally, and obviously we saw, we saw the, the effectively the collapse of one um, neo bank, and then obviously the acquisition of another 
um, I, I still wonder what their value proposition was beyond that 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 strong um, customer and digital experience. Yeah, and so I, I think that the bigger threat for um, banks here is is probably more the global players. I mean, we've already seen what PayPal's done from a payments perspective in terms of disintermediating the banks and and now people use that as a a way to pay um, rather than directly through, you know, the the card that they have with their bank. So I think it's when the likes of, you know, um, the Googles and the Facebooks of the world start to um, develop you know, broader ecosystem platform solutions that will include banking yeah. that, that will start to see um, see some change. Well, I mean, we already had that. We already had that very public stoush between you know Apple and the major banks over Apple Pay, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And that that ran for a long time. And yeah. at the end of the day, um, you know, a- Apple's such a big brand from a consumer perspective, um, and they're global that um, you know people. Pe- Regardless of, it's quite interesting if you look at brand perception. Um, the likes of Google and, and Apple have, you know, orders of magnitude higher ratings than the financial services organisations they deal with from a trust perspective. Mm. Um, even though you could argue that um, the regulatory impost on banks is much much higher, um, and this is playing out in the media at the moment than than the technology companies. Yeah. But public perception is that they would trust. Um, the technology providers more than their banks. Yeah, indeed. Well, Chris, wonderful insights. Thanks so much for joining us. We look forward to having you back on the show again soon. It's going to be an interesting year for CROs and financial services space, that's for sure. Absolutely. Great, great to be here. Thanks for having me, David. Thank you. We enable any organisation to use any technology. We help all companies become technology companies protecting the identity of both workforces and customers. Connecting the right people to the right technology at the right time. Okta, one trusted platform to secure every identity in your organization. Well, joining us now is Andrew Walker, CEO and co-founder of Nano Home Loans, a promising fintech about to launch itself into the highly competitive mortgage market in Australia. Andrew was previously a COO with Westpac, and has held several other senior roles in the banking industry over the years. Andrew, welcome to the CIO Show. Oh, thanks for having me, David. Now, you're someone who's been at the coalface of technology with um, at least one major bank slash financial institution. Talk me through what you saw at Westpac and how you got the idea that you could launch a successful fintech in Australia. Yeah, thanks, David. Look, what, um, what we saw at uh, Westpac, but I think you can broaden it to um, – all of the mainstream banks and actually broaden it even further to um, financial services and large institutions therein mm. is uh, we saw uh, over many, many years um, huge budgets being spent um, on what loosely is called IT um, and the, your audience will appreciate that's a very, very clumsy term but loosely <laughs> spent on, uh, on IT and yeah. systems improvements and innovation. Yeah. But one thing that was really interesting is not much of it was actually to the benefit of the customer. A lot of it was to the benefit of the enterprise. Yep. And we, we looked at that and, uh, and that sort of got us thinking about where we would start a business. Uh, and then we saw, we started with a fresh set of paper and said, what's the, the largest profit pool in the industry? And that's residential mortgages. And really asked ourselves the question, 
have residential mortgages changed and has the process, the system and the experience, have they changed um, at all, frankly, in the last 30 or 40 years? And the answer to that is no. Yeah. And that's that was really where we started our thinking and said, well, there has to be a better way to do this, so let's, uh, let's start there. Yeah, sure. So tell me, talk, talk to me about how you actually built built Nano. I mean, you know, this. I mean, obviously, it's 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 a bit of a cliche, I suppose. That you know, the the, the um, defining characteristic of a fintech is an organisation that's, you know, obviously very data driven, um, but but not you know unencumbered by the sorts of massive legacy systems that, that banks have. And you'd you'd seen how they operate or don't operate firsthand. Talk me through how you actually put it all together. Yeah, yeah look, the the key thing uh, that we saw and how we approach this is. Uh, is there's a really important triangle that drives the design principle of our business, um, architecturally and also, um, I guess, from a systems perspective, is there's an intersection between data, digital, and design. Right. And those three points put together are what drive our business. And so uh, we start with a fresh sheet of paper. So our digital, let's start there. Say so our technology stack uh, is simple. Uh, we run... Uh, a Salesforce backbone, and we run all of our capabilities uh, through a microservices environment, um, and uh, obviously uh, with an API stack, and we run everything on the same backbone. Now, that's really powerful, um, and it allows you to do things that incumbents can't do because they're still sitting with systems of record, middleware layers, integration layers, um, product teams running multiple um, various um, databases, systems, etc. Now, we, we don't have any of that. We have one common backbone. That's the, that's the digital side of it. The data side of it is the data is everywhere. Data is life and data drives our business. And yeah. the data um, that a customer owns um, actually allows us to uh, offer an experience where we let the data and the information tell the story. We don't ask the customer to tell their story. Uh, we ask the customer to give us access and to verify the information and the data but our view is where the data exists, the data should tell the story. And interestingly, there, David, you know, data doesn't lie, right? Um, and uh, data gives you very accurate outcomes. So uh, those are, that's digital data. And then there's design. And so you know, we design for the customer first, and we design for the experience then backwards into the system. And you know, that's worth pausing on because it's a very, very important point, and particularly in financial services. What's held financial services back and allows fintechs like ourselves to compete is the fact that they're encumbered by legacy technology stacks. So they have to start with their uh, statutorily and regulatorily defined systems of record uh, in the back end. And they're very stable. Um, They work really well. They're 30 to 40 to 50 years old. Uh, They're too expensive to change. But that means that when you manufacture, you start with this is what you can do and this is where you will do it. And then you, you, you manufacture from the inside out what we do and um, at Nano and the rest of our industry does is we start with the customer first and work backwards say, what's the customer problem that we're solving? Mm. What do we build? And then where will we put it? And it's, it's really important to think about the direction of the thinking because that's what drives the innovation. So what is the problem that you're trying to solve? That's kind of a rhetorical question, of course. <laughs> sure. Because well, it's riddled the, with problems. <laughs> yeah, well, so we're, we're, concentr- we're a financial services fintech company. Uh, the first segment that we're going after uh, and 
uh, launching publicly in uh, two months. So, so we're already writing loans, but we're in, in dark development in a friends and family phase at the moment, David. What, uh, what the problem we're solving is, um, put simply, why does it take um, months, weeks to months to get approved for a home loan when all of the data exists uh, and you can build an experience where you can actually get your home loan approved in minutes? Yeah, right, in, yeah. in minutes. In minutes. Yeah. So, that, that, and that's our business in a nutshell. So, we can approve, approve uh, home loans in minutes uh, if they fit in our segment. Obviously, you know, we, we're going after a specific segment of the market, uh, on the marketplace. It's not for everyone, but we approve them in minutes and we use data to do that. Um, we use a new technology stack to enable that and we create and have designed a customer experience that uh, makes that actually enjoyable rather than painful. Right. So, if you think about the mortgage industry, just um, for half a second, the mortgage industry has not changed fundamentally in 50 years. And interestingly, David, either have the IT systems that run the mortgages. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and so uh, why hasn't it changed? Very simply, the main market participants of the industry actually have got no incentive to change. So the mainstream um, large banks who have got most of the uh, economics of the industry who are running all those old legacy systems have got no incentive to change and they work well, they're fully amortized uh, and they they run an oligopoly. Yeah. Um, the other main participants in the industry being the mortgage brokers also have got no interest in changing because they are the participants in the industry that actually paper over the inadequacies of the current process. So that represents the lion's share of the industry and neither one of those players um, particularly want it to change. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's a credible state of affairs, isn't it? So my understanding is that with the traditional banks when you apply for a mortgage, you've got the, the marketing and the digital marketing people that are sort of trying to get you to the point where you apply. Um, and then that's sort of the end of, their, end, of, end, end of your engagement with them once you do apply. Is that sort of a correct characterisation? Yeah, look, it's, uh, David, it's a really important point. One of the design principles that we run with and uh, something that I'm pretty hot on is uh, when you when you start thinking through divisional structures and of big companies, you, you start seeing some of the inherent inefficiencies that come with them. And, and let's use the example you just outlined. So if you're running a digital marketing stack, and we're obviously a, a digital company that's um, our predominant uh, customer acquisition channel, um, your marketing team go out, they're looking to buy lookalike audiences, they're looking to take um, cookie IDs and data and and, um, and turn, um, in effect, a someone or something behind a browser into a first-party contact and so that they can market to that person. Yep. Um, and then they curate the marketing experiences and journeys to try to get you to click on an offer and then um, try to get you to apply for a product. Now, that's the marketing team's job yeah. in one of these organizations. And their job stops there, and then they go and buy another audience and try to do the same thing. Mm. The product team pick it up at that stage and say, right, now I've got a product, and I've got to get someone to apply, and so I've got to get them their name, address, the do credit checks, and, mm. and uh, the underwriting and all of that stuff. Get the documents out to them, and that's my job. Now, what really is interesting is um, if you, as we have done, combine both of those functions onto a single backbone and everything of ours runs on the same backbone, you get this hyper-efficiency through the use of data. So think think about the previous where you've got them split. You go and spend a certain amount of money to buy these audiences and convert them into leads that apply to your product, right? Um, And uh, 
they apply and let's say that they're not in segment or they, they didn't get through the application process. In financial services, not everyone you know get, gets a loan or gets approved for a, for a product. Yeah. If they don't get approved, you really want to know the reasons or the characteristics of that person or that applicant that drove that decision to not um, write the product. Yeah. Because that, that allows you to then go straight to the top of the marketing stack and say, I'm going to buy audiences, but I want you, I don't want you to check this box and this box. I want you to exclude people that look like this or have these characteristics. And what that does is it creates this efficiency loop where you're actually targeting based on the decisioning all the way through to the bottom of the credit process as opposed to the bottom of the marketing process. And uh, uh, that's what we do. And uh, the results um, are are quite, quite incredible when you think it through, but it's not particularly, um, you know, it's not a particularly complex thought process. It's just not many people do it because they don't have the systems architecture to allow them to. Well, I mean, it's that's a particularly illuminating example as to what fintechs can do that, that big banks really struggle to do. And, of course, you must be gathering um, incredibly incredibly valuable data from these, these interactions, which is, you know, presumably being used to inform future product development and, and indeed... Um, you know, future um, pitches or you know targeting of, 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 of existing applicants or previous applicants. That's right. Yeah, yeah David, both. No, we, it allows us to be far more targeted and far more relevant um, for our customers. Yeah. Um, it lowers our acquisition costs because we're not you know, going to acquire customers that we know will not get approved. And then, uh, and you you actually hit on a key point. The data is driving very, very rich information for us about new product developments, uh, actually different ways of representing our experiences. And, you know, we, we ingest and uh, digest all of that. Uh, and we can real-time feed that back into our technology stack. To, to what extent do you think fintechs like like yours, like Nano, are um, spurring banks and other established financial institutions to think differently. I mean, we already know that they're trying to think differently, but they might be struggling in in terms of actually acting differently. But what role do you do you think that fintechs are playing in um, scaring? Is probably a stronger word, but um, but for one of a better one, scaring banks into action. Uh, look, I think um, I think that it's been a little bit slow in the uptake. But if you have a look at what Afterpay have done with payments. Um, and those yeah, guys have had a, had, a, had, a, had a cracking run. Uh, yeah, you I think about buy, what they've done to payments. Didn't buy their shares early yeah. last year, sadly. <laughs> uh, well, you and me both. But anyway, look, <laughs> they, but they, they've had a they've had, they've had a, a tear away. And what they've demonstrated, um, just using them as a case study, David, is that um, you, if you focus on doing one thing very well, uh, and there's an inherent inefficiency in the industry. You can change the industry overnight. And, and that's what they've demonstrated. And large multi-divisional organizations, more philosophical point, and they, they struggle to compete across. They're, it's, they're facing and fighting a multi-fronted battle, right? And so if someone comes along and you know, can drive a tank better than your tank drivers because you know, that's all they do, then they're going to win the tank battle. And someone comes along and they're great at artillery and that's all they do and you're running you know, a general infantry, they're going to win the artillery battle. And that's what these multi-divisional companies are now facing. Mm. They're facing specialists in each product set in each segment. And to be frank, they're going to lose in a head-to-head battle because the others, uh, the new entrants are 
unencumbered, more focused, and less specialist. Yeah. What are you expecting to see this year in the in the fintech space? Oh, look, I think the fintech space is going to uh, uh, it's going to have another really good year. I think we'll see a lot of innovation this year. Yeah. Uh, and the, the innovation we're going to see this year is driven by a few things. Firstly, uh, actually, just one. Let's just concentrate on one factor. I think putting circa eight billion people in time out for about twelve months yeah. and making them live their lives making them live their lives online through their browsers, yeah. their phones and, and their tablets and PCs yeah. fundamentally changes the, the, the world. And, uh, and you done. read some yeah. of the, it has done. You read some of the case studies where it's anywhere between five and 10 years worth of digital acceleration over five to 10 months. Yeah. Uh, and, and so people are now, here's the punchline, I think, David, people are now quite unreasonable when it comes to customer experience and technology. Um, they sit there and they wonder why a company won't give them an instant decision, why a company doesn't know who they are and why the experience isn't any good. And a good example, um, which still baffles me, by the way, is my uh, my uh, big four bank that I've been with for quite some time. I still have an eight-digit randomly assigned number. That's my customer ID. Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, which, which baffles the heck out of me because it's the only company that I interact with, you know, like full stop, that I that doesn't ask you to uh, create your own login ID or use your email or something that you can remember. Yeah. Um, and the reason that is the reason that is the case is because um, there's no business case, there is no money to be made from spending the millions of dollars that it would require to upgrade the system. There's no business case that can justify it. So the customer can just sit there and be deal with an eight digit number. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where that's where the opportunity is for the likes of ourselves. We start with a customer, it's all about what the customer wants and now what the customer's demanding and that's what we deliver. I suppose the other thing is that you know, apart from people like me who, you know, work in technology and report on technology and you running a technology company, there's not there's not really uh, you know, broad public awareness of of what is possible, you know, if we again if we take the mortgage the mortgage space. But one can assume that, that once the, the, that, that does change and, and people who are, you know, contemplating the prospect, prospect of an excruciating three to four week wait on their application with a traditional bank and then being told that, hey, you, could, you, might, you might have to wait for a day or 15 minutes. <laughs> it's going mm-hmm. to be a, a radical change and, and that will surely um, – Surely spur spur the major banks into action. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for for sharing those those insights and good luck with the launch uh, later this year. And we look forward to having you back on the show soon. No, David, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for that. Thank you. And joining us now is Rob Hillard, Deloitte Asia Pacific Chief Transformation Officer. Rob, welcome back to the CIO Show. Thanks, David. Now, as we as we as we know, the the major banks and financial institutions in Australia and around the world have spent enormous invested enormous amounts of money and effort over the last ten years in their digital transformation journeys, and that looks like continuing. But really, they still have um, a, a significant problem at the core, right? Well, they actually, got a, an, an identity crisis. Are banks are our banks technology companies? Mm. Or are they financial institutions? Yeah. Well, they certainly wouldn't have claimed to have been technology companies 10 or 15 years ago. That, that would have been laughable, I suppose. And, 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 <laughs> and, 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 and I guess also it's, it's only really been 
since the, the banks and other big financial companies have embarked on their digital transformation journeys, that we've got this greater vis- visibility into the you know, the cripplingly complex and expensive systems that they had been relying on for not just decades but even generations, right? Well, that's right. I mean, financial services is incredibly complex. Then add layers and layers of regulation on top of that and it gets even, it gets even more complex. Um, you know, you've got uh, literally tens of thousands of financial products, many of which have uh, legacy, but people have, but there are people still out there with them in their portfolios and they need, they need to be maintained. It is no surprise that uh, financial institutions, banks in particular, that have had, that have been running for, for yeah, many, many, many decades, yeah, are going to end up with um, huge complexity. Yeah. But then as technologies become important and they're competing with um, the ex- consumer expectations and then increasingly consumer technology companies, um, they are needing to put forward a technology face. So they put layers of you know, great products, uh, technology-driven products around the outside. Shiny, shiny front-end stuff. That's right, but yeah. at some point you've got you, you, you've got to bring it all together. The data is complex, yeah. and we know that um, yeah, that just like building a house on uh, foundations, you need the foundations to be strong, and those core systems are the, are the foundations. They can be a competitive advantage as well because they, you know, we know that in our modern economy, data is yeah, data is king. Data is what actually provides the greatest value. It lets you it lets you differentiate for your customer and on one hand it may be frustrating uh, for CIOs and technology executives working inside banks with the complexity they've got to deal with. On the other hand there is phenomenal value in all of that and phenomenal value, I think what a little bit I'm an optimist, I think a little bit of what's exciting all of us are consumers of banking products um, done well that data is highly valuable for all of us mm. to help us to simplify our lives and to get and and to make out the financial products we use yep. more effective more effective for us. So I don't know about you, but I look at um, the financial products we use and I compare them to you know what they were yeah decades ago, and I realize they they're much richer. They can do more, but they're more complex. I, I was looking at, uh, for instance, the um, the products that my kids. Use yep. you know they're all um, yeah teen, teenagers using financial products um, and you know by by the age of fifteen they've got uh, two or three different accounts that have different purposes and rules around them and they need to know which one gets more interest and which one they need to transfer to and I think yeah, I didn't have anything like that when I was growing up and maybe it's more complex than it needs to be yeah with with regard to Banks transforming their core, um, you know, and the the fact that we're seeing the acquisition uh, of, of fintech slash neo banks like eighty six four hundred, um, and AMP announcing recently that it wants to move everything to the cloud next year. There seems to be what 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 one might be forgiven for thinking that the banks are not doing terribly well in this transformation of their cores. Would you agree with that? Uh, I no, I'd actually challenge that. I think that when, when you look globally at the yeah at, at the global landscape, Australian financial institutions, on average, really do bat above their weight. Um, we yeah, 
Uh, first of all, we have they access. Do, they to, do have a very healthy oligopoly, of course. Uh, it's like, well, it's a reasonable game for a population, <laughs> uh, a, a population of twenty-five odd million uh, people. Yeah, uh, okay. yeah. if, if you look at per capita available financial products and uh, and competition, I'll, I'll let the ACCC have the debate about whether there's enough competition or uh, yeah or otherwise. <laughs> we might get Rob. We might get Rob Sims on for another show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but I'll, I'll certainly say that there is. It, it, you know, there is actually more choice now um, in the difference between the products and the technology that supports those products yeah. than there has been, I think, mm. in any time in you know the, in, in the memorable past, in, yeah. the, in, in the recent past. Yeah. yeah, there is a difference in the experience you have with different products from uh, from different institutions, ranging from uh, uh, yeah from the emergence right through to the um, uh, to the big established banks. And it's really interesting. Customers are reacting to that in different um, in different ways, and are um, and are favouring different products. And the banks are the banks are responding. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah. Do do we look at yeah some of the issues that uh, that the banks that the banks are facing? Say, could they? Would we like them to have progressed more on certain on certain technology? Mm. Yeah, probably with twenty twenty hindsight, yeah. they some of them would have invested earlier in some systems. Uh, but actually, when you look at the stability of the systems and you look at the capability of our banks and you then compare it to uh, the, what other large economies have available to them, we actually do we actually do very, very well. We have a pretty rich set of, of features and functions available to us digitally and uh, and we have a um, and we have a system that works pretty well. And by the way, one of the reasons why we have seen, yeah, in in Australia we have been very quick to electronic payments. We are able to pay bills in a consistent way. We're able to move money um, in a in consistent ways, and it's relatively seamless. Yeah. In other economies, the reason why, yeah, you know, companies such as, uh, you know, well, obviously Square and um, PayPal and uh, WeChat Pay and AliPay and others have emerged, is because they operate. They emerged in markets. Where that interoperability, that seamless, that ability to be able to transfer, move funds, pay things yeah. was not as available. Now they've they've played a they play a role in Australia, yeah. but not because the core systems of the major institutions have let uh, have have left a major gap, but rather they've actually ended up running in a complementary way um, with. The existing institutions and the existing system. Mm-hmm. Back back to this question as to whether financial services companies are technology companies. Of course, you can superimpose superimpose that question onto any industry. I've I've had conversations with with CIOs over over the past year. CIOs that are working in banking, CIOs that have been working in banking, and um, and overwhelmingly they um, they report that it's it's quite tough being. Uh, a CIO in in the banking industry because on the one hand you, you see a lot of rhetoric from from these organisations about how they are uh, modernising and utilising digital tools to be closer and friendlier with their customers, but um, that doesn't seem to be um, necessarily uh, borne out, particularly from these conversations I've had with with CIOs working in banking. In terms of uh, in terms of Providing product, yeah, you know, we we've seen the same thing happen in banking that you've seen in that you see happen in many uh, yeah, emerging markets. That 
nobody quite knew in advance what consumers would value. Well, it turns out they really value internet banking facilities and they really value having, um, but yeah, being able to have access to and visibility of their finances from mobile devices. But then they really, really valued being able to integrate payment with their, um, with their devices. Um, they have, you know, they have valued simplification. Um, and of course, in the first generation of, of, um, of responding to that, yeah, it feels like everybody's playing catch up because no one quite knows where the customer is going to go. Not even the customer knows where they're going to go. They're, they're exploring these products. If you ask them, uh, 20 years ago, do you want to pay for things with your mobile phone or do you want to use, um, or do you want to use a credit card? That probably wouldn't have occurred to them to worry about that. Yet now it, it really is, it really is important. But in playing that catch up, um, of course, we ended up with all of those systems around the outside of the um, of, yeah, of the core yeah. taking priority because that's where the that's that's where the cheese immediately moves to. Um, but for the for technology executives working as part of an integral part of financial institutions, yeah, the key is being able to demonstrate is to be able to explain and build into the strategic plan or the ongoing transformation of the whole system, you know, to pay back that technology debt. So you've talked on your show previously about mm-hmm. technology debt yeah. and this idea that you can do things um, at the front, but you may be building, if you don't replace or refresh your, uh, your core systems, you're gradually building up a debt that will have to get paid at some time in the future. Mm. If there is a industry that can financially engineer and understand the concept of of debt and of a, li- of a future liability, it is absolutely banking, and the opportunity to to commoditize the financial management of, of financial investments in systems really does exist in uh, with yeah within the banking within the banking sector, um, and I think we'll see we'll we'll see that gradually happen. We've probably got another generation of just really big painful core system replacements or changes or investment to go and we are at the beginning of a super cycle of that but if i can be controversial this may be the last one before it gets commoditized yeah well we spoke to we spoke to andrew walker earlier in the show he's the ceo of of um nano bank which is a a fintech launching in a couple of months focusing on the mortgage space and andrew was at, at westpac for a long time himself and his kind of characterization, particularly with the mortgage space, is that it's 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 almost um, it, it's it's almost stone age. Like it's it's still heavily paper based, highly inefficient. You know, some people waiting for up to a month before getting, um, you know, knowing whether their mortgage application had been successful, and uh, whether or not uh, Nano is going to be successful, or any, any, any a number of other. Many other companies, particularly in that mortgage space, remains to be seen. But you know, some of these companies are, are claiming what they feel is fairly a fairly conservative um, application times of you know days, hours, and and sometimes minutes. So that that seems to be an area really ripe for for um, it, well, it is it being is. disrupted. Yeah, it is. But but there's actually a little bit of detail here that 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 that's important. Mm. Um, there is a huge opportunity in mortgage origination. Yeah, the, the, the process of applying for a mortgage, or in fact any financial product, is complex. It's got lots of 
paper, even when we digitise, we still talk about signing documents, even if they're electronic documents. So it's very linear and workflow based. Um, Worldwide, there's been an enormous amount of work um, in digitising, automating, streamlining that process. Worldwide, and including in Australia, best practice is still that if you have fully automated the process um, and you get a fantastic outcome, Mm. you still have 50% of your applicants require human intervention because something is an exception to everything defined as a standard process. Yeah, it's complicated stuff. It's complicated. Now, that's what artificial intelligence gives us an opportunity to address. Now, the, the challenge for the fintechs coming into the market, this, I think, I, but I'm extremely excited by um, the, the fintechs who are saying we're going to challenge and take that and, and um, increase the amount of automation so that the consumer gets access to that advantage of, of very, very quick approval, um, access to financial products more seamlessly. The only, the only caution I have is if the new entrants to the market go after the 50% who have no complexity and are simple, they're going after a rich and valuable part of the market, but they may actually make it less, may actually make it harder for those who are in the 50% who end up with exceptions. Classically, they are the people who are self-employed, the, the people who might be sole traders, um, the people who have a, um, a small business, the people who might have had some sort of financial incidents in their past and who disproportionately run the risk at being in the disadvantaged part of our population over time. And I, I think it would be a really, a really bad social outcome if what we end up doing is we say we're going to leave those who are at financial disadvantage to the big financial institutions and we're going to open up to the most financially advantaged access to innovative, uh, exotic, new uh, financial services. Oh, so we really need to make sure we look out. And by the way, that's, we, we, we've experienced this before in telecommunications when we used universal service obligations to try and protect rural consumers, but we know how hard it has been to make sure that they've got to, to provide them with access to full connectivity and the services associated with that and to make it worthwhile for every entrance in the market to provide their service um, to um, to our entire community. Yeah, do you think do you think CIO is working back again for third time to this point about banks, financial institutions being uh, technology companies? Do you think that the that the role of of the CIO is 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 going to be potentially elevated in in the industry moving forward? I mean, it has been in in, in other in other sectors, certainly in healthcare. CIOs in healthcare are now you know, more, more value than they've ever been, even notwithstanding COVID. But do you think that that's a trend that we might see for CIOs, people, and, and and obviously this is for our audience, CIOs that might be contemplating moving into banking. What do you think that that, that, that looks like for... for oh, absolutely. Yeah. CIOs have already been elevated in financial services. And you know how I know that? Because you look at the salaries being paid to technology executives in financial services, it's way high. the trend has been upwards. Yeah, yeah. And um, if there's one thing that financial institutions know is uh, yeah, they follow the money. Um, and yeah, if, if yeah, they are not investing in technology executives because yeah, they think they're nice people, they're investing in them because this is a really, really important agenda. Um, again, you know, if, if you go back not that long, 
no bank differentiated their service based upon saying that we offer the best online experience, we offer the best digital experience. They differentiated purely by the financial product. Whereas now, people actively choose between financial institutions based upon the experience, the digital experience that they have, this, how how streamlined it is and how much it simplifies their lives. And that is only going to increase and increase exponentially. It's not even a linear increase from here. And that means that no business strategy for a bank can be a, can be divorced from the technology strategy. The mm-hmm. two are absolutely hand in glove. Extricably linked. Well, Rob, thanks so much for joining us again and we uh, look forward to having you back on the show again soon. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. In our next episode, CIO Editor-in-Chief Byron Connolly is back on the mic talking about Agile. No, he's not going to regale you with his latest running times, though I'm sure they're quite impressive. Rather, he'll be talking to CIOs about what this term Agile actually means and what it looks like when practised properly. Is it all that the hype has it cracked up to be? A powerful new way of thinking about and executing projects that deliver better value and outcomes? Or is it just a new buzzword ripe for abuse? Probably a bit of both. We hope you can join us.